0: When we are dancing and you're dangerously near me, I get ideas, ooh, I get ideas. I want to hold you so much closer than I dare to. I want to scold
1: you, cause I care more than I care to.
0: And when you touch me and there's fire in every finger, I get Well, today's show is indeed about ideas. It's also about what happens when people get ideas and how those ideas play out in the real world. Uh, They uh, coalesce around a very specific set of themes that are contained in the book by our guest. The book is The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. The author is Yasha Monk. He's been with us many times before, uh, and we're committed to staying uh, staying the course with Yasha as long as he wants to come on our show. And we have a show for him to come on with. He can he can write a book, and we'll do this thing. And so, first of all, Yasha, welcome back. Thank you so much, and I will always come back on your show, Colin. <laughs> so I, I want to actually start pretty quickly with sort of a real world example that you can kind of unpack in terms of the themes of your book. But before, and it's one that you're very familiar with. But uh, before we do that, yeah. Maybe just, you know, do, do your 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 elevator pitch for the book. What's the essential argument that you want people to understand?
1: The question that every author dreads, especially at the beginning of a process of writing a book, the elevator pitch. Yeah. Well, you know, listen, I'm somebody who's worried for a long time about the threat to our democratic institutions and have written a number of books about that and come on your show repeatedly to talk about the rise of populists, especially on the right Um, At the same time, as a university professor and a think tank fellow and somebody who moves in a lot of mainstream institutions and some progressive spaces, I've come to be really struck by a new set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation that have become so prominent in American life in a very short span of time. And so uh, I wanted to understand those ideas better, and I wanted to read books about those ideas, and I was uh, intrigued by the fact that there didn't seem to be many books that actually explain where these ideas come from, and then assess them in a fair, uh, but potentially critical way.
0: Right, Um, And so so that's what I set out to do. Right. And we should say, I mean, these ideas are sometimes labeled or mislabeled or mischaracterized in terms of woke or wokeism or identity politics. You're kind of looking for a more effective and less polarizing, less incendiary set of language to to talk about this. But I think it's interesting. Let's take an example from the real world that, that you've almost you know, that you followed along and almost been a little bit a part of, but it's more recent than your book. And so uh, let me try to explain it and you can fill in any gaps that I that I leave. There's a writer and thinker. his name is Coleman Hughes, uh, and he, um, like so many other people, uh, wind up wind up with an, uh, an invitation to give a TED Talk, and he was going to give a TED Talk on his, some of his thinking about what he calls colorblindness, the idea that ultimately introducing... Uh, all kinds of considerations of of identity difference uh, into educational environments and other environments doesn't help. Uh, Actually, it's counterproductive. It all goes better—I'm oversimplifying here—but it all goes better if that kind of stuff is pushed to the side and people are looked at in a much more universal way. So he gives uh, this—first of all, he goes through the curation process at TED. He goes through the fact-checking process at TED. He, I think, takes some of their ideas for edits and changes, he gives the talk. And then he subsequently hears that his talk might not even be used at all. It might not be pushed up onto the video site, which is sort of the essential part of what a TED Talk is. It's a, it's a video. It might not be used at all. And then he hears it might be used but only if he's willing to debate somebody who doesn't think what he thinks and have that maybe appended to his video. or years maybe it'll be released at the same time as his video. At a certain point he kind of takes his case to the public. But the other thing that he's hearing uh, is that there is a group within Ted, uh, they actually have a name. they're called Black at Ted, uh, who have been ha- who, they're the people, they're having a lot of problems with this. They're putting pressure on the, the uppermost leadership, uh, particularly Chris Anderson, uh, who's the, sort of the head of Ted. And that that's where a lot of the pushback's coming and they regard some of this stuff. Uh, as toxic, pernicious, possibly dangerous, uh, and they they don't like it. They don't want it out. They wish it weren't going to be part of anything that Ted's putting out, and and that that's sort of what's happening is that the this guy at the top, Chris Anderson, is kind of navigating two different things. One of them is you know they did invite this guy. They knew what he thought and all this kind of stuff. And now within his own organization, he's hearing this wasn't a good idea. So. You know, Ultimately, the talk gets out. It can be seen. Coleman Hughes thinks that the internal TED presentation of his talk, his talk is being kind of engineered from within somehow, so it doesn't get as many views. But on YouTube, obviously, a lot of people are seeing it. It's well over 100, maybe 200,000 views. So, and one thing Chris Anderson has said on Twitter is, see, there was no censorship. <laughs> um, so talk a little bit about what you see in this whole story. There are a lot of elements from your book that I think are there in the story, but how does it look to you?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really interesting case study of, of, of what's going on in a lot of explicitly progressive spaces, and more importantly, in a lot of spaces like TED, but uh supposed to be politically neutral, that say that we're interested in all ideas that are worth spreading in a nonpartisan way, um, but where quite clearly there is a very strong set of lines about what you can and can't say. Now, you know, Coleman Hughes is a brilliant young black and Latino intellectual. He has political views that are left of center on nearly everything. I disagree with him on some things. I disagree with for his exact set of views about colorblindness. But he is a very smart, very methodical, philosophical thinker who made the case for why uh, we should not be colorblind in the silly sense of pretending that color doesn't exist or that we don't see race, and he's very explicit about that in that TED Talk, but rather in the sense the best way to build a better society is not to make how institutions and the state treats people depend on the color of their skin. A point of view which, uh, depending on the exact circumstance, um, a majority of Americans, according to most polls, seem to agree on. Certainly in the state of California, we had one important test of that when we had a, a vote on whether or not to permit affirmative action. And in a majority minority state that is, uh, you know, a plus uh, Biden state by 20 or 30 points, a majority of people rejected that referendum um, because they did not agree with, with affirmative action. Now, what happened is that Coleman gave this talk, which I thought was a very smart talk. I had some disagreements with it. I didn't agree with it 100%. Um, and very clearly, first of all, Ted made it a condition of the publication of his video that Coleman would engage in a debate about this topic, something it hasn't so far as we know done for any other speaker. Coleman is not afraid to debate his ideas, so he was happy to do that. But then uh, that video was not included on the TED podcast. It was not pushed on the social media channels. Uh, There was no attempt to actually spread this video. And as a result, it's gotten a fraction of the views of the next least watched video. And believe me, it is not the least compelling video that Ted has ever published. (laughs) And, you know, Chris Anderson, the the founder and the head of Ted, then did what many heads of organizations that are captured in this kind of way tend to do, which is that uh, he seems to feel genuinely stuck between his commitment to spreading ideas into making sure that Ted doesn't become a complete echo chamber and the demands of his staff. But in the result, I would say that he actually calumnied Coleman Hughes because he said that some of his staff felt that the talk had attacked their identities and that this, therefore, was something that he had to pay heed to. Now, again, Coleman is is an African-American guy who has a set of ideas about public policy that are widely shared in the American public. Nothing in the talk attacked any individual person. And certainly it is absurd to think that Coleman attacked African-Americans in any kind of way in this talk. But we have created an elite culture in some parts of America where the expression of these kinds of views is seen as an attack. Um, and this is systematic. Um, you know, in many universities in the United States, you now have anonymous hotlines you can call if you feel that anybody in the university has committed a microaggression. And one of the definitions of what a microaggression consists in, according to the University of California, are things like talking about the American dream or things like saying that you endorse any any form of colorblindness. So again, you know, you don't have to agree with these ideas 100%. I personally don't agree with these ideas 100%. But to claim that somebody like Coleman had attacked employees of Ted and made them feel unsafe that in some kind of way their identities had been attacked i think is just an attempt to put people outside of the boundaries of respectable discourse in a frankly shameful way
0: this i think also fits a little bit into one of the things you one of the terms you have in your book the short march through institutions um and we've seen this, I think, in other um, kind of disseminators of ideas. I think the New York Times in particular has had some real issues with this, that you you have people who, who join institutions, who become employees in institutions, um, and they don't necessarily share all the sensibilities of every decision that gets made in those institutions. But, I mean, as you can see in the story that we just told – there were a group of people at TED who, you know, and I—I I, I don't think either one of us would want to completely disregard this. If people feel assaulted, if people feel as though they feel they are less safe somehow or other in their jobs, I mean, that's not something we just cavalierly toss to the side. But it—it it started to be an argument against all kinds of things that were ordinarily previously part of free speech and, and kind of an encompassing discourse. But react to that.
1: And, and and I have to right and a, a few things. Right? My new book, *The Identity Trap*, is not a book about cancel culture, and it's not a book about censorship in the main. I do worry about that, but it's really a book that engages on the substance with where these ideas come from and why they became so influential, and and what's ultimately wrong with them. But 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 I do obviously worry about the ways in which a genuine culture of free speech has been undermined. And there, I have to say that these claims that ideas are attacking people personally and making them feel unsafe are a very effective tool to shut down real discussion in a way that I am very concerned about. This is what happened when a bunch of staff of the New York Times tried to push out the opinion editor over an opinion piece that they disliked, that I also disagree with, disagreed with on the substance, um, but they were saying this op-ed was making us unsafe and it is the claim here, and 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 there I have to say, look,
0: let's, let's just pause on that one for a, a second, Yasha. at a university, Yasha. Let me just like uh, put a couple of buttons and bows on that. So the the editor was James Bennett. This is in the middle of Black Lives Matter, the protests, the Times commissions a piece from U.S. Senator Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton basically says in this op-ed, I think there ought to be the option of bringing troops in in order to quell riots, and at least in part of the piece makes a distinction between people who are protesting peacefully and people who are rioting. But there's there's some stuff in there that you could understand people objecting to. The thing that made it different was there's always been kind of an assumption that the New York Times op-ed space would be a place where you would read stuff that you objected to, and maybe stuff that you just think, well, he's got no business saying well, this. So yeah, so and, take and, it from. And Colin,
1: it. I, I'm the editor of a magazine called Persuasion. Mm. I would not have printed that op-ed. I I I don't agree with Tom Cotton on most things, perhaps all things, and I have no <laughs> particular interest in having him as a contributor to my magazine. But my magazine is one that explicitly defends philosophically liberal ideas, and I don't think that Tom Cotton, by and large, shares those. Right. So that's a natural editorial decision. The New York Times op-ed page, you know, in the months and years running up to this moment, had published the Taliban. It had published high Russian state officials. I think it had published Vladimir Putin himself, if I recall rightly. It had published all kinds of terrible people around the world. The point of the op-ed section of the New York Times was to share noteworthy opinions, some of which were noteworthy by virtue of who held them. Right? I don't think that the owner of the New York Times or the other journalist of the New York Times agreed with the Taliban, but they thought that it was important for the American public to know what the Taliban position was in some kind of context. Now, you can change that, but to oust somebody and say that this op-ed editor had somehow done something terrible by sharing an unpopular position within the newspaper that felt, you know, but whatever it was, it was not worse than what the Taliban had said is, is I think, just a little bit strange. But but I, I wanted to, just to say something a little bit more definitive about, you know how we should feel about those claims Uh, look if you work in an office you know selling paper i think that you shouldn't be subject to people's political opinions in the office particularly and i think it's fair to say hey this guy keeps lecturing me about politics leave me alone if you are an employee at ted an organization with motto ideas worth spreading an organization whose mission it is to deal with ideas. If you are working at a publishing house, if you are an editor or a technical, you know, support staff doing graphics and whatever else at a newspaper, you are in the idea business. And then I'm sorry, I don't have much sympathy for saying, you know, I now am going to abrogate to myself the power to decide what opinions cannot be published in this newspaper and mount that kind of revolt against them. I just think that That goes against the basic mission that should be part of your job description in that field. If you don't want to be around a lot of different ideas, don't work for a newspaper that has an opinion page. Don't work for TED.
0: All right. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back with more Yasha Munk. The book is The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. We will be back after the proverbial this. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I saw God out on the block today He was darker than the preacher's say With a teardrop tattooed on his face and his I heard when All right. We're back. Our guest today is Yasha Munk, uh, professor of, uh, of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University, the founder of the digital magazine Persuasion and host of the podcast The Good Fight. His new book is The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. So... There's so much that I want to get into here and the time is so short. But so you teach, I teach less, but I teach at Yale in their political science department pretty much every spring semester until they decide otherwise. And I think we both have the experience... That our students are not necessarily coming in as these pre-programmed automatons who've embraced all of these ideas, this notion uh, that our our differences, our racial ethnic um, differences, our differences in sexual orientation um, define us, define us so much that we really can't. Uh, begin any conversation without incorporating all of that, all these ideas of identity. I, I I don't see that that much in my students. I don't know what they say about me when they leave the classroom. But in the classroom, you know, we can dispute ideas. I, I, I don't know. I, and I, I just, I guess one of the questions that I think you get a lot about this is, is this stuff happening on the margins, you know, or is this stuff, permeating so completely into the mainstream that it's almost like the water that fish swim in. We don't even notice it anymore, but it's very much there. I mean, say a little bit about how you see these identity trap problems manifesting. How big are they?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important question that people wonder about for a reason. I do think that they've become quite influential and quite pervasive. I mean, one of the reasons why This TED story we've been talking about got a little bit of attention, but not that much attention. Is that at this point it's unsurprising. We've had similar kinds of internal meltdowns as we were saying at the New York Times, at the ACLU, at the Sierra Club, at lots of different organizations. I have a friend who was always a little bit skeptical of my concerns about this topic, sometimes rolled her eyes a little bit at me in a friendly way. I mean, I didn't see her for a few years because of a pandemic. And when I next uh, ran into her at, at, at a larger gathering, she made a beeline straight for me and said, "Yasha, I now get what you've been talking about, because a very progressive organization serving a very important mission that she worked for, just tore itself apart over the course of a pandemic. And she ended up leaving the organization in frustration and its inability to actually stay on mission. So I think that is one of the reasons where we see it. I think another area where we see it is in the rapid adoption of a set of pedagogical practices in a lot of schools around the country, particularly in private schools, but not only in private schools. In most places you now have teachers coming into classrooms, sometimes as early as third grade or second grade or first grade, and divide kids up by their ethnic identity, saying if you're black, you go over there, if you're Latino, you go over there, if you're Asian American, you go over there, and if you're white, you go into that fourth corner. The hope is one very influential organization characteristically called embrace race has said is to make sure that children grow up to think of themselves as racial beings and to really embrace their racial identity and in this context I really worry about how this is going to set up more zero-sum conflict between different groups. I right. We should say, we should emphasize happen. this
0: is kind of an exercise and maybe something that gets turned into maybe a regular feature uh, of the school day or certain school days. But it isn't like they have to go stand in that corner or next to that wall and stay there, right? This is something that happens. That's well, they're separated part of the for
1: family. some. It, it varies. I mean, exactly how often and exactly in what way. But it is often a regular feature of a school week, but for some period of time, kids are separated by race. So let and me again, a, let me ask you this. We're, so we're not, we're not talking here about 15, 16-year-olds in high school who can join a cultural club, which yeah. is organized around those kind of identities. We're talking about six, seven, eight-year-olds um, who really don't have an amount of agency.
0: So let me ask you this, um, and just for the sake of argument, you know, I went to a boys school and there were girls schools and there are places like Smith and Wellesley and, and Mount Holyoke that, you know, really kind of specialized in the idea of let's get the women away from the men, let's get the boys away from the girls, let's let the girls flourish, have an opportunity to be themselves without worrying what boys think about them. There are probably some other similar argument for why I had to go to a boys school. It was never explained to me. But this... Wasn't really especially controversial in a private school setting. It's even been tried in public school settings. So we don't think that that was sort of toxic and crazy, and and you know and that it could be healthy for a girl to have a situation where her thoughts are not intruded upon by some kind of bullying, mansplaining bunch of boys. What's what's wrong with the exercise that you just described?
1: Well, well, a few things. I mean, first of all, I'm not sure that. Boys schools in particular are always the best idea i went to college <laughs> in england with a whole bunch of people who'd been to boarding schools with only boys and i can't i don't have the impression that it set them up for life all that well but the that side apart you know there's a crucial difference which is that men and women not in every case of course but in many cases attracted to each other and so even if you go to school separately Uh, You seek out each other's company and often you end up marrying each other. And so we haven't had societies that have gone to war on the basis of men fighting women that have been torn apart in civil wars because of that divide. When it comes to uh, different ethnic groups and different races, that is one of the things that has inspired the most amount of conflict in human history and the purpose. uh, This is why I worry particularly about the white group. It's not that the white kids are gonna be uncomfortable. I think it's perfectly fine to be uncomfortable as part of your education sometimes, but it's about what is going to happen to their self-conception. We know from history and we know from social science that when you tell somebody the most important thing about you is the particular group in which you belong, what group, you know, how you self-characterize has varied hugely, over over the course of history, but once you think this is my group, you're going to fight for the interests of that group. You're nearly always going to give preferential treatment for people who you think of as part of your group, and less good treatment to people who you think of as part of a saliently different group. And so the hope here is to create great anti you know white anti racists who are going to be aware of their white privilege and. A fight for a more just society. My worry is that you're much more likely to create a bunch of white supremacists who are fighting for the interests of what we've always been told is the most important thing about them, which is their whiteness. Um, so I worry about the impact that that it has. To go further to some of the examples of why this is not just anecdotal, of why this has real impacts on on public policy. Here's one example from the pandemic. We finally got these wonderful life-saving vaccines uh, whose inventors just rightly got the Nobel prize in medicine, Uh, but they didn't yet exist in sufficient quantities, right? They had to be produced at mass scale and that would take a while. And so every country in the world had to figure out how to distribute the doses of vaccines they had. And because there's just an exponential growth in how vulnerable you are to this disease as you get older nearly every country in the world decided to prioritize the elderly. So they started with the over-85s and then gave it to the over-80s and so on. That also had the advantage of being pretty easy to administer. Uh, The United States went a different way. Uh, The key committee, ACIP, advising the Centers for Disease Control on how to roll this out, acknowledged explicitly that the best models the CDC had suggested that uh, for, uh, prioritizing the elderly would reduce the death toll by 2 to 6%. And yet they decided that that would be unethical because the elderly in the United States are uh, disproportionately white. And so they instead suggested that we prioritize essential workers. Now, uh, most states ended up with a mixed approach, doing a little bit of both. But what happened nearly everywhere was a disaster. You ended up with way too many people eligible for the actual number of slots there was huge political jockeying so um movie producers were declared essential workers finance executives <laughs> were declared essential workers i was an essential worker in the state of maryland because i'm a college professor there even though i wasn't allowed to teach in person <laughs> so everybody was was trying to get these spots so who got the spots The people who could spend all their day uh refreshing websites or driving three hours out of a way to a more remote corner of a state where there happened to be a dose available Or building, like a friend of mine, little computer macros that would snag the appointment on the CVS website before any human could click fast enough. In other words, the most privileged. And in the end, I think that this rollout scheme probably killed more non-white Americans as well. Because if you give two doses of a vaccine or if you give the doses of a vaccine to two 25-year-old black Uber drivers rather than uh, one 80-year-old black retiree, the medical data suggests very strongly that more black people are going to die. So here's a life and death decision in which we chose a course that predictably I believe had a higher death toll and that needlessly created a zero sum competition between different americans based on the color of their skin. it's okay, so not so let me break in here this, this this is
0: one of the f- few years in this book where uh, well I'm uh, you know we're bound to disagree about certain things. I, I see this differently. I Disagree might be the wrong word, but I see this very differently. Although, and in a way, weird way, your argument is it's easy to prove what you're saying in the sense that non-white people did have worse health outcomes during the pandemic. Now, proving... The kind of – you know the post hoc proctor hoc part of this is a little – I mean they they probably would have had worse outcomes anyway. So let me just explain how I see this. I, I would agree by the way. The way that you just described it was a stupid way to do it. But if I had been in charge of things, I probably would have targeted non-white people and specifically, specifically black Americans even more. I, I would have – built even bigger, wider on-ramps for them because, I mean, I think we now do have enough studies and enough data, and I cite particularly the work of a guy named David Williams, who's a sociologist and, and public health expert, who's really established that if you control for as many variables as you possibly can, in fact, one of the more famous studies that he was involved in involved Yale graduates from the class of 1970, that... Black people just have worse worst health outcomes and shorter lifespans, that being black is a comorbidity. And, and, and so, I mean, I would actually want the vaccine probably to get to them in disproportionate numbers. There's obviously a risk that I'm going to piss people off and, and create resentment and stuff like that. But I think it's a worthy health goal to say, wow, this is a group of people who probably for, you know, multi-generational reasons are, first of all, not as able to take advantage of certain kinds of healthcare, but even the ones who are, because of that and the effect of microaggressions on them and their blood pressure and stuff like that, they're at greater risk. They're like diabetics or something. They're at greater risk. Why not help them out? So what's your response to that? Well,
1: so first of all, I think you have the facts wrong. I'm looking here at the website of the Harvard School of Public Health Mm -hmm. on October 21st, 2022. Uh, saying that COVID death rates are now higher in whites than in blacks. So it was true in the early stages of the Mm. pandemic that African-Americans had higher uh, death rates than white Americans. But that shifted over the course of the pandemic. Um, And it was not true for the pandemic as as a whole. So that's one. The other important point is that we are continually shifting Americans into these two monolithic blocks of whites and so-called people of color. But that hides a tremendous amount of variation. So in many of the policies that were adopted at the state level and in hospitals over the course of a pandemic, Asian-Americans were prioritized as being people of color, got extra points and triage protocols for moving up the line, even for Asian-Americans throughout the pandemic had very low, comparatively low rates of vulnerability to COVID, often because they were faster to adopt masks and 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 take vaccines and so on. So 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 for reasons that I think often were were laudable and so on. But again, you know, you 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 split the American population to these two vast categories in ways that actually hide a tremendous amount of variation within it. And then the third reason is political. I just think that it is tremendously naive, and this is one of the reasons why I call it the identity trap to think that. If you actually encourage this kind of zero-sum competition between ethnic groups, it is going to be the most vulnerable and the most marginalized that are going to profit. What about American history or what about the nature of America today makes you think that if, uh, you know, what kind of benefit you get from the state, when you get access to a vaccine, comes to depend on the success of your group and bargaining over who gets access when is systematically going to favor African-Americans or Latinos or other groups that really do still experience discrimination rather than whites. I think the best hope we have to build a thriving, tolerant society and democracy in which we actually treat each other fairly and with respect is to make how the state treats you less rather than more dependent on the race you're part of, you know. By the way, there's a similar argument here about free speech. You know, so many people have started to debate about free speech when it's a question of whether, uh, you know, Yale University or Smith College should have a speech code. And so, therefore, progressives have always assumed that their ideas are going to be the ones enshrined in those speech codes, because after all, the dean of Harvard Law School and the president of Smith are progressives. And so now they've uh, generalized this argument and said, perhaps we in general should have much more strict restrictions, certainly on what people can say in public without consequences, perhaps as is being adopted in many countries, even on the law itself, on how the state might be able to punish you for certain forms of speech. But that is really naive in a world in which the threat from right-wing populists and other uh, far-right demagogues remains extremely weird. What on earth makes you think that in a country that is supposedly so racist and so white supremacist the would-be censors are always going to be on the sides of the great and the noble? I think that this is not a very realistic view of the world and that's one of many reasons why this is a trap.
0: Alright, we have to take a quick break here. Uh, we'll have a little bit of time on the other side of it to talk more to Yasha Munk about the book The Identity Trap*. We'll do that. Okay, we're back. It's time to say some very specific thank yous. I've got to thank uh, Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer, as always. The senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson. She's also the producer of this particular episode. Our guest is Yasha Monk, professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University, founder of the digital magazine Persuasion, host of the podcast, The Good Fight. His new book is The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. And there's just a lot of ideas in this book and a lot of history in this book, and there's no way we can cover it in the time allotted. But I did want to spend a little bit of time with you talking about what is often referred to as the way forward. So we're in the middle of something right now. And I I think it'd be very difficult to disagree with that premise of your book. We're in the middle of a set of ideas and a set of practices that are different from what we've experienced in the past. And there's maybe a hope that it's a cycle that'll kind of take care of itself or start to regulate itself or, you know, regress to the mean. But if it doesn't, what are some things that you suggest that would be improvements?
1: Yeah, I think the way to think about this as a whole is to really think about what the basic principles for our society should be. Now, I base myself in what I think is one of the proudest traditions in American history, which runs from people like Frederick Douglass through Abraham Lincoln to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and, and others. You know, when Frederick Douglass was invited to hold a speech celebrating the 4th of July. He recognized that his compatriots were being hypocritical, that they were talking about how beautiful the words are that all men are born equal at a time when slavery was an ongoing practice in the United States. And he called them out. But he didn't say rip up the Constitution, rip up the Bill of Rights, rip rip up those universal values and, and neutral laws. He said, no, what we need to do is to live up to these values. If you mean seriously, that this is the set of standards you want to live by, then by what right are you excluding people like me from them? On another occasion, he didn't condemn free speech because it allowed people in his time to say terrible, vile, racist things in print, in big newspapers. He called free speech the dread of tyrants because it also allowed abolitionists, when they were very unpopular, to wage the righteous fight to abolish slavery. You know, later Martin Luther King Jr., Uh, recognized that the promissory note written to African Americans by the Bank of Justice had been fraudulent, but he called on the Bank of Justice to honor that promissory note rather than to rip it up. And the tradition that I'm talking about that has become so influential over the last decade explicitly sets itself up in conflict and in contrast with this tradition. Uh, Derek Bell, very interesting and very uh, worth reading, founder of the theory that's come to be known, critical race theory, explicitly says that we have to move beyond what he calls the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. Kimberly Crenshaw, another key figure in the tradition, reflecting on the 20th anniversary of critical race theory, says that the philosophy of Barack Obama is fundamentally at odds with key tenets of critical race theory. And so I think uh, we need to understand the way in which these new ideas actually have turned against the, the proudest tradition in American politics and to try to live up to those values. Can I take people through what I think the core ideas here?
0: Yeah, I mean, we're, we have a little bit of time pressure here, but if you can do it quickly. yeah, I, I, sure,
1: I will be fast. So there's three main claims that this tradition makes. First of all, that the key prism for understanding the world is race, gender, and sexual orientation. Secondly, that universal values like those enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, like Brown versus Board of Education, the key Supreme Court ruling, um, really are meant to pull the wool over people's eyes. And therefore, we have made no progress on questions like racism or homophobia today. And thirdly, therefore, that we should rip these things up and make how we treat people uh, more dependent on the group that we are from. And I think that there is a way to take very seriously the ongoing role of, of discrimination and racism and sexism and homophobia in our society, but one that is more likely to create a better world. And that is first of all to recognize that yes, race, gender and sexual orientation matter, but so do other things. So do religion and how people uh, act and what their aspirations are and all kinds of other things. You have to let each situation teach you how to read it rather than looking at it with your mind already made up about what's going to be important about it. Secondly, but America has historically uh, failed to live up, woefully failed to live up to its promises. But the thing that has allowed us to make progress, the thing that has allowed us to abolish slavery and abolish Jim Crow and uh, create a much more thriving, diverse society, a much more tolerant society than we had 150 or 25 years ago is the pressure by people like MLK and Lincoln and uh, King and Obama to live up to those values, to say, by what right are we excluding people when we're promising to treat them equally? And therefore, I think the way forward is to create a society in which we don't ignore injustices, but we remedy injustices to such an extent that how we treat each other depends less and not more on the kind of groups into which we're born.
0: So this will be the probably the last thing I get to talk to you about, it. and I hesitate to bring it up because you're so much better read than, <laughs> than I am. But one person that I keep coming back to when I think about questions like this is John Rawls. And, and one, of the raw, one of the Rawlsian arguments, as I understand it, is you can't just have a day where you say, all right, from here on in, we're going to have justice and equality. Everybody's going to get treated the same way. And we're going to have a really fair way of distributing, let's say, COVID vaccines, uh, and we're going to make sure everybody can get to it. And, and Rawls says, the problem with that is we're not all hitting off the same golf tees here. There are people who are, because of multi generational disadvantages, just not in the same position to take advantage of a declaration of equality and justice. And it seems to me anyway that that thinking is still very true and needs to be incorporated somehow into the vision you just laid out. But I'd love for you to respond. So I think we might have slightly different
1: interpretations of of roles (laughs) that that would turn into a grad student seminar. Um, I think the important point here is to distinguish about what we're talking about. First of all, I'm not opposed to the idea of reparations, uh, which given American history, uh, there's a compelling case for. What I am opposed to is to set up a society in which, at each instance, how you're treated explicitly turns on the group into which you're born, in which you walk into school and if you're part of one ethnic group you go in a different corner than the other person you ask for uh, some kind of help from the state as happened during the pandemic with uh, emergency relief for restaurants and whether or not your application is prioritized depends on the color of your skin in which all of our social customs come to be more and more inflected by this explicit attempt to distinguish in how we treat each other on the basis of that. I don't think that that is the right way to create a society in which we are able to sustain the kind of political solidarity we need to build a better world. And the other thing I want to say is that there's sometimes a deep misunderstanding about the extent to which a genuinely universal welfare state could remedy some of those injustices. I think we should have policies to help all poor children, irrespective of their skin color. I think it's much more likely that we can win those kinds of policies if we take a universal approach and if we don't. But also, such a policy would disproportionately help minority groups, because if it is true that uh, uh, Latinos, for example, disproportionately suffer from child poverty, then a policy which helps all poor children is disproportionately
0: going to help Latino kids. We have to stop there. It's really interesting, though, uh, and I could easily do another hour. The book's fascinating. I don't agree with everything in it, but I certainly agree uh, with the the need to have this conversation. And you've done such a great job of framing it, as you usually do. The book is The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. The author is Yasha Monk. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much, Colin.